Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Amanda Machaka, Jolani Tulo and Figlele Mwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. President Robert Mugabe urges African leaders to unite. South Africans commemorate Human Rights Day today and Algeria is Africa's happiest country. In economics news, leaders meet to discuss ways to boost intra-Africa trade. And in sports news, South African Davis Cup team prepares to take on Slovenia. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Good morning. The South African Human Rights Commission has urged people from all walks of life to take an anti-racism pledge this Human Rights Day. Government, however, says it will use the day to honor the late black consciousness leader Steve Bantubiko. This year marks 40 years since Biko's brutal murder by the apartheid government. President Jacob Zuma will visit the Biko family in Ginsburg this morning and later unveil Biko's tombstone and memorial. Debo Mokobo reports. The 2017 commemoration of Human Rights Day is held under the theme The Year for War Tambo, Unity in Action in Advancing Human Rights. This day originates from the tragic 21 March 1960 Sharville massacre where 69 people were killed by the apartheid police during a peaceful protest. And the highlight of this year's commemoration is the celebration of Biko's life. Today's unveiling of his gravesite is a celebration of the contribution he made to liberate all South Africans. This will culminate into the main Human Rights Day commemoration at the Victoria Sports Ground in King Williamstown late in the day. Zimbabwean opposition political parties accused the ruling party of trying to rig the 2018 polls by withdrawing the biometric voter registration. Biometrics refer to human physical and behavioral characteristics such as fingerprints, the iris, signature and the face, which can be used to uniquely identify an individual. Ahead of a protest against government on the BVR, Jacob Ngarimvume, leader of Transform Zimbabwe, explains why a coalition of parties are bitter. One of the things was that we agreed on as stakeholders was the implementation of the BVR. We agreed that UNDP was going to acquire the BVR case that would be needed uh, to register people. And the process had already started and is ongoing. But of course, recently government then announced, they, in fact, they are saying they want the SPB, the state procurement board, to take over that process. As Transform Zimbabwe <coughs> working in NERA, we absolutely resist and reject that process of SPB taking over the identification of the company that is going to acquire the BVR kit. They want to do it for several reasons. They want to have an influence on the system that will be set up to enable them to register their, uh, their members uh, in an unlawful manner. So we are absolutely rejecting and resisting that. 
Egyptian and Palestinian leaders have held reconciliation meeting talks in the Egyptian capital Cairo. Relations between Cairo and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas have been tense over a range of issues. Relations further soured in December when Egypt withdrew a draft resolution in the UN Security Council against Israeli settlements. The draft was later resubmitted by other council members and adopted. Egypt, the most populous Arab nation, has for decades been closely involved in efforts to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States has for the first time confirmed publicly that they are investigating election interference by Russia and links to the campaign of President Donald Trump. James Comey was testifying before the House Intelligence Committee on Capitol Hill in Washington. As you know, our practice is not to confirm the existence of ongoing investigations, especially those investigations that involve classified matters. But in unusual circumstances, where it is in the public interest, it may be appropriate to do so, as Justice Department policies recognize. This is one of those circumstances. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. And finally, in Norway, Denmark and Iceland are the happiest countries in the world, according to the latest World Happiness Report. The rankings were released to coincide with the UN's International Day of Happiness on Monday. The report was first published in 2012 and is increasingly seen as an important measure of a country's well-being and social progress, shown Price Peace reports. Western Europe dominates the top 10 with Canada at 7, New Zealand at 8 and Australia at 9. The United States is ranked the 14th happiest place while South Africa finds itself at a lowly 101. Algeria is the best placed African country at 53 with Mauritius, Libya, Morocco, Nigeria and Somalia all ahead of South Africa on the continent. That's the latest news. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe says African leaders are not united but can achieve more if they can come together with a common purpose. Mugabe was speaking at the launch of the African Economic Platform in Mauritius, where various African leaders, business people and delegates have gathered. The conference is aimed at finding ways to drive the African economy. Bali Sibanyoni has more. The Western Hotel in Mauritius is a hive of activity as the African Union Foundation officially launches its African economic platform. Heads of state such as Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe and the President of Sarawi have made their way here today. The platform, which is modelled around the World Economic Forum, is expected to encourage continental leaders to develop policies surrounding trade, innovation, entrepreneurship and manufacturing. In his opening remarks, Mauritius President Kumar 
Jagnad called on all African leaders to rely on each other's strengths in order to build a better continent. During these two days, we will have the opportunity to reflect in greater depth on how to boost intra-Africa trade, for more flexible rules of origin, on the removal of non-tariff barriers, and on the measures that are required to grow our manufacturing sector. It is important that we work together to ensure the sustainability of the manufacturing processes and coordinate the various strategies of the production process across the continent. At the same time, African Union Commission Deputy Chair Luisa Diogo told delegates if Africans were more united, growth wouldn't be an issue. She also asked the youth to play a more central role in order to achieve good results through this platform. The road ahead is clear. His Agenda 2063 provides us with the policy framework to accomplish the purpose for which we have, created, have been created. We have borrowed the keys from our communities on the promise that we will unlock opportunities for all. But Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe took a swipe at South Africa for its failure to open up free trade in the SADC region. He says free trade is important for regional integration. In the SADC, our region, where South Africa is our big boss, because they are uh, more developed than any of us. We have tried economically to think of how we can interact economically, culturally, in the furtherance of the interests of our people. And uh, as you heard the last speaker, the same has been happening in East Africa. It is, it has not been that easy to be in step with each other. Mugabe says the problem that African countries are faced with is that they are not on par with each other, which hampers economic growth throughout the continent and forces them to rely on those who colonize them. Some countries rely on them completely for their security and stability, rely on them for even the development of their cultural aspects of society, be it education, and because the political factor, political factor, has had its play with leaders, forming, people forming parties, with leaders, some leaders, thinking they alone, to the exclusion of others must play the part. The multi-party system is with us. Democracy is with us. The Zimbabwean leader says the continuous surge of NGOs in Africa is a way for Europe and America to interfere with how Africa is being run. So much interference with our, by outsiders, sometimes direct, but now very commonly through what they call NGOs, 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 hundreds of them. In one country you will get numerous hundreds. There is hardly any country. No, there is no country in Africa without NGOs.
none, none, none at all. So we have not been left to ourselves to do our own thing, to develop ourselves indigenously. No. Mugabe told guests that once Zimbabweans demanded for their land back from the British government, they were punished and continue to be punished through sanctions. We have had sanctions for more than 10, 12, 15 years imposed on us in Zimbabwe for no other reason than the fact that we got our land back from the settlers, from the British government, you see. So the resource that we got, which is land, very crucial, has cost us quite a lot. Nevertheless, we try our best within Sadiq. Mugabe also says barriers which currently exist are responsible for growth hindrance, which this conference aims to address. In regard to our products and trading with each other, the barriers, boundary barriers, mobility even of labor when uh, the rome act that established the eec was established took only about three years after establishment that it agreed on the mobility of labor mobility of companies and so on no we have we haven't got to that yet we still have barriers at our, our, our borders. We are trying to eliminate these uh, in Sadiq. The conference is expected to continue tomorrow with more focus on empowering the youth for employment, innovation and entrepreneurship. Bali Sibanyoni in Port Louis in Mauritius. Let's go back in time to today in 1960. The Sharpeville Massacre takes place in South Africa when police shot down over 69 protesters just outside the Sharpeville police station. The protest was part of the countrywide anti-pass campaign launched by the Pan-Africanist Congress, the PAC. The objective was to force the apartheid government to end the pass laws which required Africans to carry passes at all times. That was today in history in the year 1960. Hello, this month the African Union will be hosting its inaugural African Economic Platform in the Mauritian capital of Port Louis. The summit will take place from the 20th to the 22nd of this month. This will be a forum for frank engagements between African heads of state, business leaders and academics on Africa's future. Furthermore, it will explore opportunities for the implementation of the AU Agenda 2063. Join Channel Africa Radio as we bring you unfold events in Mauritius from the 20th to the 22nd of this month. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The chairperson of the South African Nuclear Energy Corporation Board of Directors, Dr. Calvin Kim, says electricity production and economic growth go hand in hand. He was speaking at a panel discussion on the topic made in Africa through value chains at the African Economic Platform in Mauritius. African heads of state... 
captains of industry and academics have gathered in Port Louis to reflect on how to accelerate the continent's economic transformation through collaboration, cooperation and joint ownership of Africa's continental goals. Dr. Kelvin Kem, chairperson of the South African Nuclear Energy Corporation Board of Directors, elaborates. Well, what is important to note is that electricity production and economic growth go hand in hand. There's, there's no way around it. If you want to double the average income of, of the citizens of the country, you need more electricity. And when you rely, for example, on hydropower, which is dependent on rainfall, then you're never quite sure how much electricity you're going to get. Uh, similarly with solar and wind. Solar you get during the daytime and wind you get when the wind blows. So I was saying that nuclear power, which is so often thought of as big and complex and dangerous, in fact is very much misrepresented. There are smaller reactors called pebble bed modular reactors, which we call PBMRs. For example, they produce about 200 megawatts. And PBMRs don't need water. They can be placed anywhere you like, close to where the consumption point is. And uh, they're safe, they're economic, and they're a good bet. So I'm saying that any African country can aim to become a nuclear power country by aiming for pebble bed-sized reactors in their country. And that's a great answer. So I'm saying we need to completely do away with electricity and go the nuclear route? Well, I'm believing that in a hundred years' time, when people look back, the whole world just about will be running on nuclear. So I think we're at the beginning of a new wave around the world. So people should start thinking about that. Nuclear is not only for big, powerful countries, it's for smaller countries too, but also for the big, powerful countries who want smaller amounts of electricity distributed around sort of convenient places, and that's what you can do with it. But I also want to say that nuclear is not only nuclear power. In uh, the case of South Africa, we export nuclear medicine around the world. And nuclear medicine is also something that we want to expand into many African countries. There are a number already moving in the direction of nuclear medicine. And this is used to detect things like cancer and also to uh, carry out certain therapeutic work with cancer and and, uh, detecting faults in one's heart. And there's a number of things that one can do with nuclear medicine, which is a new wave and to be encouraged. And... All in this, does technology play a role? If so, what sort of role does it play? Absolutely. Technology plays a role in everything. And technology can range from very complicated technology to simple technology, like growing crops. And harvesting the crops is a technology in the sense that if you get it right at the right time and you do everything correctly according to the right pattern and you get the best results. So people mustn't only think that technology is very high-powered technology. So much uh, simpler things have done correctly can improve your outputs and your general performance dramatically. And Doctor, just personally, just how important do you think this gathering is for the African continent? I think it's, the gathering is exceedingly important because, for example, a few people have said standards are important. If you don't have similar standards across borders, you will have problems in working together. Also, the permeability of borders to trade. You need to be able to move across a border. If you're exporting something, you mustn't find that the border between two countries becomes a barrier. So if interaction between people and agreeing on principles, uh, standards, standards and such like is exceedingly important and there there should be a lot of opening up if they start with those sorts of things. And uh, just to go back to what you said about nuclear, is Africa making any headway? Are we going in the right direction when it comes to its usage? Nuclear is important, yes. South Africa is embarking on a major nuclear program of 9,600 megawatts of extra nuclear power on top of the 2,000 we already have. And I'm aware of numbers of nuclear um, efforts in other countries. A nuclear university is being founded, a new one in Zambia, just before Christmas. And so certainly there's a lot of people realizing that there's a nuclear future and moving in that direction 
and is to be really encouraged. That was Dr. Calvin Kim, chairperson of the South African Nuclear Energy Corporation Board of Directors, speaking to Channel Africa's Ndlanta Mahlangu at the African Economic Platform in Mauritius. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1975. Inkata National Cultural Liberation Movement, later the Inkata Freedom Party, is formed in South Africa. That was today in history in the year 1975. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Zimbabwe's opposition party say government is reneging on its promise to implement biometric voter registration for the 2018 polls. The historic elections, in which 93-year-old President Robert Mugabe will also be participating, is attracting domestic and international attention over alleged rigging in the past. Whilst protests have been scheduled to take place sometime this week against Mugabe's decision to flip-flop on the voter registration called BVR, Zimbabweans appear to be ignorant of what the process entails. Simon Machema reports from Harare. Commands. Now, the ZANU-PF-led government in Zimbabwe has been battling with allegations of vote rigging by opposition political parties who are opting for the latest biometric voter registration. While Zimbabwe will not be inventing the wheel with countries such as Ghana, Benin, Tanzania, Togo, Mauritania, Ivory Coast, DRC and Nigeria having used the same system successfully, locals here are not sure what that entails. This lack of understanding and misinformation is being used to discredit the process by government culminating in the setup of an agenda giving rise to the abandonment of the biometrics projects. Biometrics refers to human physical and behavioral characteristics such as fingerprints, the iris of the eye, signature, face, and this can be used to uniquely identify an individual. Ahead of the protests, Against government on BRV, Jacob Ngarivume, leader of Transform Zimbabwe, on Monday explained why a coalition of parties is bitter. We've got two main reasons why we have been calling for this system as the opposition. Number one, you know, it takes the biodata of voters, which will enable uh, stakeholders to check if people appearing on the voters' roll are the real people who are on that voters' roll. Then number two, 
the fingerprint, which is part of the biometric voter system, will also help in the, uh, in the evaluation of the deduplication process to make sure that one person doesn't appear on the voters' roll twice. And we know already that you know, one of our main complaints has always been that you know, the dead have been voting. And, uh, and we have a strong feeling that the dead have been voting for ZANU-PF. However, political parties accuse the ruling party of trying to rig the 2018 polls by reneging the BRV. One of the things was that we agreed on as stakeholders was the implementation of the BVR, of the biometric voter uh, system. We agreed that UNDP was going to acquire the kits, the BVR kits that would be needed uh, to register people. And the process had already started and is ongoing. But of course, recently government then announced that they are going to, they want um, uh, the, um, the, in fact, they are saying they want the SPB, the state procurement board, to take over that process. As Transform Zimbabwe <coughs> working in NERA, we absolutely resist and reject that process of SPB taking over uh, the acquisition uh, or, or, or the identification of the company that is going to acquire the BVR kids. They want to do it for several reasons. They want to have an influence on the system that will be set up to enable them to register their, uh, their members uh, in an unlawful manner. So we are absolutely rejecting and resisting that. According to Ngari Vume, Zimbabweans don't have faith in the voting process resulting in voter apathy. Zimbabwe's population of 13 million people has an estimated 8, 8 million eligible voters. However, only 4 million have been voting in the last two general elections of 2018 to 2013. In 2008, over 5 million people registered to vote, but only 2.5 million voted. And this figure represents just a quarter or 25% of the voting population. For this, parties under an umbrella body of National Electoral Reform Agenda, NERA, are approaching SADC to intervene. SADC has failed us before. And what, do you think, do you have confidence and faith in SADC? You would see that, you know, what I have alluded to, you know, we, we, we don't have one strategy and one approach to everything that we are doing. We have various strategies all fitting and working together. We have got a matrix of strategies that we are putting together as a political party and as opposition political parties. Um, we may have our challenges with SADC like in the past, but honestly, the truth is, you know, they're a regional body that we need to engage, you see. So we believe that, you know, SADC is an important partner in the block that we can actually take, uh, you know, we can, we can go with our grievances too, you see. So, but not, of course, not, not only believing that it's SADC that is going to make the difference. No, it's about ourselves. It's about Zimbabweans themselves. That's why you see that on what I've alluded to, number one, first and foremost, we are having demonstrations as Zimbabweans. Meanwhile, Zimbabweans will be protesting this week on Wednesday against Mugabe and his decision to stop the BRV process. We are going to be in the streets, demonstrate and tell, you know, and, and express ourselves to the government that this is unacceptable what you are doing. So then, of course, we also are resorting to the court system to say, let us take them to court so that we stop them from interfering. And then, of course, we are also signing a petition, taking it to Sadiq. So we are not believing that Sadiq can make the difference alone. We believe that they can probably influence in the context of all these other initiatives that we are coming with. And so we've learned the hard way, as you all probably know, that you know, you know, this system sometimes respects nobody. So we approach and fight at all levels that we can as a political party. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Let's go back in time to today in the year 2006. 
The social media website Twitter was established with the sending of the first tweet by co-founder Jack Dorsey, who wrote, Just setting up my Twitter. That was Today in History in the year 2006. Criminal elements have hijacked the culture of initiation in South Africa. That's according to at least one traditional leader who says criminals have broken all the rules and regulations that guide the practice. Dozens of initiates have lost their lives over the years. There have also been questions around the exclusion of women and mothers who play a critical role in initiates' life. Tabilembele explores this issue. According to Nkosi Pategile Olomisa of the Hegebe tribe in the Tembo Nation, the way initiations are being carried out at most initiation schools is wrong and undermines the cultural practice. He says traditionally and historically, a family doesn't just wake up and decide to initiate a boy into manhood. They wait for the traditional leader to make an announcement. When the young man feels he's ready, he communicates with his mother to relay the message to his father and elderly men in the family. They would then facilitate the process. Women from the village then work together to make the boma some kind of shelter for young men in the mountain. They also prepare food daily for initiates until they return to a big celebration. However, nowadays criminal elements break all the rules. Young men are abducted from their homes and are kept at an unknown location with no food and drink. Instead, they consume alcohol and drugs. Not uh, meant to produce males who become arrogant, who think they are superior to their mothers and their sisters. And everybody who is a female, they're supposed to be respectful to them. They're supposed to be protected, protectors rather than abusers of uh, women in general and also those who are vulnerable within society like the elderly people. The issue has also been raised by the CRL Rights Commission. They've heard that women are being driven out of their homes by their own children after they return home from initiations in the mountains. Sidibeng community leader Dipuwa Muholane explains. I know women that have literally have to run out of their homes, fearing for their lives. In the city Bain region in particular, we don't even have a place of safety for women and children. We don't have. So when these women are driven out of their homes by these children that come back as gangsters, there is nowhere to put them. The CRL Rights Commission chairperson Togom Kwanazi Kalova was shocked to hear this. As a mother, you are scared of your own child. You know it steals from you. And we have to just suffer in silence now. And one thing I'm slowly noticing is that it's mainly single parents. Because in all these stores, you, you don't see the father. You don't yes. see the uncle taking control. It is easy to abduct a child of a single parent. Ingosi Olomisa believes a number of issues are to blame for this. These include lawlessness, a lack of respect for authority, and people looking down on traditional leaders as backward people who promote customs and cultures that oppress women. A man who decides, or a family that decides to take their boy to, to initiation cannot be called upon to, to account to the traditional leadership. That's why they had to do these things without informing the traditional leadership because of all of those things that encourage the undermining of authority and law. Uh, people do as they please. The Commission for Gender Equality has criticized those who abuse the culture and discriminate against women. Jabu Baloi of the Commission for Gender Equality says it can't be right that women who have given birth to these young men are excluded from the life-changing practice of initiation. I'm Tabile Mbele in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. As Human Rights Day in South Africa and government will use the 2017 Human Rights Day to honor the late black consciousness leader Steve Bantu Biko. Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States has for the first time confirmed publicly that they are investigating election interference by Russia and links to the campaign of President Donald Trump and Norway has been ranked the world's happiest nation. Details at 9. Thank you, Amanda. The dignity and hopes of Syrian women and girls are disintegrating after six years of brutal civil war, along with the whole fabric of family life. That's according to Khenia Dakak, technical advisor with the UN Population Fund, who has worked with refugees and internally displaced Syrian women across the Middle East. She spoke at an event entitled The Invisible Lives of Syrian Women During the Ongoing Commission on the Status of Women at UN Headquarters. Matthew Wells asked her to outline the hidden impact of war on the women of Syria and what the UN can do to help repair the damage. This crisis has been going, ongoing for the last six years. This is not about really uh, an acute emergency anymore. It's really protracted emergency. We don't know if there is light at the end of that tunnel. It's we about survival time. really, isn't it? Exactly. And survival at the moment is not just giving them food and, and water and shelter. It's about really how do we get them back their dignity and how do we make sure that they have livelihoods that can sustain them for a period of time. What we are not seeing is the effect and the impact of that on individuals' level, on the people, on the families. Families have been separated. Uh, uh, young people are being, you know, like uh, forced to work. They are not into education. Uh, we have seen a lot of sexual and gender-based violence happening. We have seen a lot of young girls being sold out. As you know, poor, uh, it's part of their feeling that the family is supporting them and, and really uh, protecting them from what's happening. But the reality of the matter, that coping mechanism is is not actually helping these girls. So away from the bombs and the kind of headlines, this disintegration of the family is going on? In Israel, really disintegration, big disintegration uh, happening at the moment. A lot of the young people are forced into coping, different coping mechanisms. Sometimes it's not the best coping mechanism. It's actually uh, sort of uh, a, either becoming extremely violent or they become extremely uh, sadistic into, towards themselves. Sometimes, you know, like they want suicide. Uh, we see also they are forced to, to really leave their countries and go somewhere else because there is no hope for them. I think losing that hope that's the invisible. I don't think we want another generation where they lost the hope that there is any future and a better future. And I think what we want is a better future for the Syrians themselves, their, their, their families, their uh, host communities, uh, for everybody. Because also at the moment, until now, the host communities have been supporting and, and, and helping and, and understanding. But I think if this continues for a long period and becomes more chronic, I think that, uh, that ability to host and ability to be uh, supportive of the Syrians is going to go away. And that's what we don't want, another 
crisis in the Middle East. Are the problems, uh, is the crisis of the family um, different for those who fled, those who've become refugees versus those who've, who've stayed, you know, who are may- maybe besieged, living under bombardment? I think it's hard for everybody. I don't think that the life... Uh, just just imagine yourself going like traveling from one place to another and you lost all your luggage and you don't have a cell phone and you don't have anything how do you feel as a person that's what's happening at the moment it's it's really doesn't matter where you are if you are besieged it's the same thing you are not communicating you are not transferring you are not being able to move from one side to another so it is also like you are besieged and and you are like in a prison the same thing you know like you are taking the freedom from people to choose and that's the worst thing you know like it's like losing the hope losing the ability to choose losing the ability to really uh, live normally and people have to live to be like we what we want is to bring them back to normal as much as we can of course it's not easy but if we don't do it now it's going to be worse and worse and worse because what we have heard today in the panel mental health is on the rise we have seen a lot of people with psychological traumas Uh, this psychological traumas is going to be recurrent anytime there is any event which is might be slightly nothing has to do with anything they will become uh, violent they could be become uh, they become depressed they could go into suicide we never know you know what i mean this is what is about post-traumatic stress syndrome is about you know people not knowing how to react normally to anything so what kind of survival strategies can the un help with when it comes to syrian women and girls i think what we have tried to 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 really do in integrate for example what we call psychological first aid in all our programs where um, if a woman even comes for antenatal care she comes just to to check on her pregnancy we listen, we talk to her, we listen, we, we just be there for her when she comes. This we call psychological first aid. So psychological first aid should be integrated in all the programs that the UN does. Ability to listen to them, 85% you will be able to solve their problems one way or another by linking them to information, by linking them to another program that you might, might not be running, but linking them to another program. That interlinkages needs to happen. As a UN, the more we do that, I think we will be more successful in really changing people's life and becoming transformational. Because I think what we need to do is transform the lives of these women and girls um, forever. Before it's irreversible. Yes, exactly. That was Henia Dakak, technical advisor with the UN Population Fund, speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. South Africa commemorates Human Rights Day today, the day of Sharpeville Massacre, when police opened fire on a crowd killing 69 unarmed people in 1960. They were protesting against the humiliating past laws that controlled the movement of black people. Besides a reminder of a dark period in the country's history, This day also celebrates South Africa's unique and highly acclaimed constitution. Its Bill of Rights guarantees human dignity and equal rights to all citizens. Dewa Mabinga is Southern Africa Director for Human Rights Watch. Yes, certainly there is a huge challenge, but the issue of socioeconomic rights is that the government must always 
strive to do the best within available resources. So what is required is progress, is to move forward, is to keep moving in terms of the realization of, uh, of basic rights like access to health, education, and what recently happened around the social grant crisis is an indicator of the kinds of challenges that could put at risk the rights of millions of South Africans. So there is a really need for the executive, the South African authorities, to step up the game in terms of uh, provision of basic rights for the citizens of South Africa. But now you're mentioning the incidents of the grand saga that took place over the last few weeks. South Africa seems to be a witness, you know, to be witness to countless instances of corruption by very senior politicians and officials of government, you know. How does this threaten the rule of law, democracy and human rights? Well, this culture of corruption clearly undermines human rights in the sense that the much-needed resources that should otherwise go towards important or priority issues like health, education and other things will be diverted to the pockets of individuals. And failure to hold accountable those responsible for corruption means that in a way it is a tacit approval or a promotion of corruption because then you have what is called impunity where people can commit these crimes and commit you know, acts of corruption knowing very well that nothing will happen to them. So it means that now the national resources will in a big way be diverted from where they are supposed to be going, and therefore you would find that there will be less resources available for health, for education, and if there is no political leadership or political will to take decisive steps to root out, to weed out corruption, then it means that even the rule of law will collapse because the rule of law is based on the idea of the separation of powers and of strong institutions that would defend and advance good governance and human rights. So corruption becomes the cancer that is away at the very soul of democracy, if you like. South Africa's constitution, as we have said, has been described as one of the best, if not the best in the world. But does it work in a practical way for the people? I mean, this is in protecting human rights. Well, certainly South Africa has one of the most progressive constitutions, which means that basically South Africa has a strong human rights foundation upon which the implementation of rights should be built. But the question of implementation is really what is in question because the government needs to bring its constitution to life, needs to ensure that there is a practical enjoyment of those rights that are in the constitution. And this is where sometimes the gap is, a huge gap between the good provisions on paper and the reality on the ground. And there could be a number of reasons for this. One which could be resources, but also sometimes the lack of political will and also sometimes simply the lack of prioritization of the importance of human rights values. So the government needs to embark on a massive education exercise so that citizens in South Africa get to know their rights and their responsibilities and get to understand that in the event of their rights being violated, what steps can they take for redress? So that is very important for citizens to know because knowledge is empowerment and there is sometimes a huge gap between what is on paper and what people know the government should dispel the lack of knowledge that might be there and encourage 
citizens to enjoy their rights, to claim their rights, and to also take steps to protect those rights and have, you know, strong institutions that are there to defend rights when there is a violation. So, for example, South Africa is a very strong judiciary. So it is important for the government, for the authorities, to guard jealously the independence and the autonomy of the judiciary because it is one of the pillars that protects human rights. So you would find that um, the recent burglary or robbery at the office of the chief justice offices, if it is politically motivated, then it would be a serious attack on the judiciary. So there is need for the judiciary to remain independent and to defend and also interpret the rights of citizens as they are reflected in the Constitution. That was Dewa Mabenga, Southern Africa Director for Human Rights Watch, speaking to Joseho Dingake. Now let's go back in time to today in 1960. The Sharpville massacre takes place in South Africa when police shot down over 69 protesters just outside a Sharpville police station. The protest was part of a countrywide anti-pass campaign launched by the Pan-Africanist Congress, the PAC, the objective was to force the apartheid government to end the pass laws which required Africans to carry passes at all times. That was today in history in the year 1960. Our economics updates up next with Rala Nitulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Ethiopia is expected to be the manufacturing capital of Africa in the next 10 years. The country has launched major initiatives to boost its industrial sector and has halved poverty from 50 to 23 percent. Amina Akram reports. Ethiopia, a country that struggled with poverty and high unemployment, is fast making strides. In the last 13 years, its economy has been growing by 10.3 percent. Its GDP is estimated to be at $70 billion. The country also has one of the world's lowest inequality levels between rich and poor. The rapid growth has led to a decline in the country's poverty levels. Its growth and transformational plans have helped stimulate the country's manufacturing, agriculture and hospitality industries. The South African Revenue Service has pledged to support a probe into its operations. Deputy Finance Minister Mkobisi Jonas yesterday granted tax ombudsman Judge Bernard Mwepe permission to investigate SARS. This followed numerous complaints from individual taxpayers and companies about delayed refunds. SARS spokesperson Sandile Memela. We believe that this will bolster the confidence of taxpayers in SARS systems. And of course, SARS remains confident in the strength and robustness of its systems, which are intended to simplify the process of meeting tax obligations. South Africa's rand has risen to its strongest level in 19 months. The currency is trading at around 12.63 to the dollar, a level last seen in October 2015. The focus this week will be on a fourth quarter current account data and monthly consumer inflation, both GR tomorrow. Oroto's poll, poll rather, of leading economists expects to 
rather expects the current account deficit to narrow to 3.5% of gross domestic product. Still in South Africa, the country's power utility ESCOM sees the construction of a coal handling solution for the Majuba power station in the Bumalanga province has been completed following the collapse of a silo two years ago. This includes a rebuilding of the silo and reinforcement of two others. The collapse of the silo prevented coal supply to the stations, to the, all the other station silos. ESCOM spokesperson and Abra Masango says the completion of the project will ensure reliable electricity supply. And finally, Chile and China have suspended imports of meat from Brazil over claims that corrupt exporters sold tainted products. The scandal is threatening Brazil's reputation as the world's biggest beef and poultry exporting nation. Chile's Agriculture Minister Carlos Fuche said on Twitter the government was imposing a temporary suspension of meat imports from Brazil. It said the ban would stay in place until Brazil confirmed confirmed that companies exporting meat to Chile had been correctly vetted. The scandal broke on Friday when police said a two-year probe has found major meat producers bribed health inspectors to certify tainted food as fit for consumption. At least 30 people have been arrested with police raiding more than a dozen processing plants and issuing 27 arrest warrants. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 12.66 to the South African rand, 10.12 to the Botswana Pula and at 9.50 to the Zambian Quacha. It is also trading at 0.80 to the British pound and at 0.93 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,227 and platinum at $958 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $51.86 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. Our sports update up next was Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, starting off with tennis news, the Kia South African Davis Cup team is set to host another Davis Cup tie as they take on Slovenia at the Irene Country Club Pretoria in two weeks' time. Speaking from his base in USA, Captain Marcus Odriska warned that Slovenia is a team to watch. Well, I think it's going to be an extremely exciting tie. I think the Slovenian team is very strong. I know them both very well. Um, Karpcic and Gemma, um, the Slovenian guys, was maybe a little older than those guys, um, and he sort of preceded these guys. So I've been on, the, on their Davis Cup team, actually, for one or two trips. So um, I know those guys really well. I'm a great bunch of guys. And uh, more importantly, they're actually very formidable players. They've both been right about the top 50 in singles. Um, they've beaten some really good players. So um, this is certainly going to be the toughest test that we've faced yet. This is the sixth tie that will be hosted by Irene Country Club. The club is establishing itself as favorite hunting ground for the South African Davis Cup team. The high altitude presents an advantage for the home team against European opponents. Lloyd played against Kavcic in Tokyo, uh, or in Japan, rather, and uh, he lost him, I think, 7-6 in the third, um, but that was low altitude, and I think altitude presents our best chances. We have uh, two guys in the team that are with Lloyd and, um, and Nick Scholz who have huge serves in really big games, and that tends to favor the altitude, and that's 
the major reason we picked Irene. Uh, and I think that's probably where we have our best chance of beating this team. South African national team manager Bani Gujani has confirmed that Kamuhelo Mukojo wants to play for Bafana Bafana and is only in camp because of this commitment. The FC20 midfielder arrived in the country over the weekend and is currently with the South African squad in Deben ahead of an international friendly against Guinea-Bissau, ending some of the speculation about whether he will turn up or not. The doubt stemmed after Mukojo, who recently took up Dutch citizenship, had announced his retirement from international football in April last year. But Kujani revealed that the 26-year-old still wants to play. The reason why the association has called Kamuhelo to this camp is because Kamuhelo has indicated that he wants to play for the country. And we recognize that. And as he says, really the other logistics will attend to it later on. The attendance register for the squad has so far been good, with 24 out of 25 players reporting for duty by last night. Only French-based attacker Keegan Dolly was missing, but Safa is aware of his late arrival today. Standing coach Owen Dagama explains. We're really excited. We've, we've, we've brought a very uh, exciting team. I think the technical team has done very well in the selection of the team. Um, the thinking was a lot of continuity from the Senegal team. Obviously, the team did very well, but also adding uh, some exciting players. I think it's, 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 it's important that we acknowledge players when they do well in, in their respective teams. After all, we always want at every given time to present you the best possible Bafana Bafana team. Yes, there's a lot of other players who are also doing well, um, and they're definitely on the radar. I mean, um, I've been asked a lot of questions about specific players, but I think it's important that we pay tribute to the players that have been selected um, uh, and, and, and acknowledge and acknowledge their selection and focus on that. Uh, and and um, so, as I said, we're very excited to be here. And um, um, we, we, we certainly hope that uh, the boys will come out and, um, and give a fantastic display of football here in, in, in KZN. And finally, with cycling news, Team Dimension Data for Kubega got off to a very good start in the Spanish World Tour race as Christian Sravalagli finished third in the bunch sprint in Calera. On Monday stage, one of Volta at Catalonia was expected to be a day for the sprinters, even though there were several categorized climbs to overcome. Many riders tried to break away early on, among these, Nathaniel Behani, but the peloton was not interested in letting too big of a good getaway. At the end, only four riders managed to distance the pack, but they never got a gap of more than just a few minutes. Towards the end of the stage, a couple of riders joined and later attacked from the breakaway. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. President Robert Mugabe urges African leaders to unite. 
South Africans commemorate Human Rights Day today and Algeria is Africa's happiest country. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutsura Magadza, technical producer Murray Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 969 And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Brenda Fassi with a song titled Black President.